Good evening, King's Cross. If you're not already, please stand for the reading of God's word. It is from James 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn and weep. Let your laughter turn to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let me pray for us, uh, and then we'll get started, all right? Uh, Father, I thank you for my friends here, uh, for my brothers and sisters in Christ, for our visitors and guests, and uh, Lord, we just pray uh, that you would just encounter us in a uh, fresh and in a powerful uh, way through your word. Um, God, we have so much to learn from you. Uh, would you just wow us with your amazing grace? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, so we are back uh, in this series. Uh, it's a short topical series that we're calling Relationship by the Book. And what we've been looking at is that the this different relationships that we find ourselves in, where we find ourselves asking, like, hey, what would these relationships look like if they were actually shaped by the book? What would these relationships look like if they were shaped by the scriptures, by the Holy Bible? And so a few weeks ago, uh, Brian Seitz here in the front row, he kicked us off with a talk on marriage in Ephesians 5. Then we looked at uh, the parent-child relationship in Deuteronomy 6, uh, what it looks like for parents to grow their children in the grace of God. And then we looked at friendship by the book in Romans chapter 12. And last week, we looked at neighboring by the book. What does it look like to, look, uh, to be a good uh, neighbor in Luke 10? And uh, sometimes... In each of these relationships that we have, we find moments of tension, don't we? We find ourselves in these moments of tension where things just don't go well in marriage and parenting and friendship and neighboring and things like that. And so to sort of close out this short series, we're going to look at how do we handle conflict by the book? How do we handle personal conflict with one another according to this, to this book? And because conflict is something that, like, we, we don't like to talk about it, right? We don't like to talk about t conflict. It's like, man, can't we just, can't we just talk to what we've been talking about, how, how we are to love one another? Like, can't we just all get along? But when it comes to human relationships, conflict is inevitable. The Bible tells us that we are all sinners, Every single one of us, we're all sinners by nature and by choice. And that uh, just, it just makes sense then because of that, that when a sinner lives and interacts with other sinners, that's going to produce some type of tension, right? That's going to create friction. That's going to create conflict. And we get into conflict over the most basic things, don't we? 
We have huge conflicts. We have the most basic conflicts. For example, how many of you fought about this during this, uh, I like to call it this hot house summer, right, that we just had? Um, what, like, what time is it? What time or when, when, when is a good time to, uh, to run the air, right? How many of you guys had that conversation? Uh, what temperature should we set the thermostat, right? When was the last time uh, that, if you're married, when was the last time that you and your spouse um, fought at a yellow light, right? Like, should you slow down or should you speed up, right? And how do you know, right? Uh, no, maybe that's just us, right? And so uh, what, what, what about the last time that you called, like, a customer service line and you had to wait on hold for a long time? Like, how did you handle that? On the other side, of course, you know, you always hear about the infamous toilet paper dilemma, right? Do you and your spouse or your roommate, do you agree on whether you're supposed to hang it so that you, you get the next piece, like you do an overhand from over the top, or do you go from under the bottom like a heretic, right? We fight over things all the time, the most basic things like sports, politics, we fight over trivial doctrinal differences. We, we fight over the latest social media or news, hot takes. And some of you just are getting angry just thinking about these, right? Get over it. The point is, this is, this is just real talk from James that we're going to look at in James chapter 4. We get angry. We get into fights. Conflict between one sinner and another is inevitable. And look what James says about it in, in James chapter 4, verse 1. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Notice his concern amongst the Christians fighting in this church. His concern isn't, isn't hey, what is it that you guys are fighting about? Or his concern is not what seems to be the problem here. No, there, there's a lot of wisdom in the question he asks. What causes the quarrels? You see, James doesn't even have time to go on about the things that we fight about. He just knows that we fight. He knows we have conflict. His concern is why it happens and what we're to do about it. And so if you look into the original language of verse 1, what he's asking is, hey, what place does your conflict, where does it come from? From where is the root cause of your fighting with one another? And I want you to know and notice that his audience here are, they're Christians, right? You, you can see that by reading the, the beginning of, of chapter one. He's writing to a group of Christians. He's not writing to unbelievers, but to people who love Jesus and desire to know him and follow him. And they're fighting with one another. We get into conflict with people that we love, don't we? Every spouse has had a fight with their significant other in the last month, right? Every parent has had a fight with their child in the last month. Every child has had a fight with their parent in the last month. Every friend has had some type of fight or conflict within the last month. And some of you are thinking like, why, man, why are you talking about like a month? We had conflict on the way to the church today, right? Maybe again, that's just us, right? But what does James say about our conflict? We'll be looking mostly at, at, at most of uh, verses 1 through 10 today uh, to see what James has to say about our conflict. But I did some wordsmithing there, kind of proud of this, to put it into a simple acrostic that goes A, B, C, D, all right? So just to help you out. So point number one, point number one, you attack the real problem, all right? Attack the real problem. Read verses 1 and 2 with me of James chapter 4. 
James says, hey, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Well, we see in these two verses that we are a self-centered people. Humanity has a self-centered problem. Verse 2, he says, you desire and you don't have. You covet and you cannot obtain. And isn't that what self-centeredness does? Self-centeredness is when we say, hey, look, I want this. This needs to happen. I need this. I don't care what you want. I don't care how you feel. I don't care what you said. I don't care what just happened or what you think just happened. I want this my way, my expectations, my desires. Nothing reveals how self-centered we are, like the relationships that we have with the people that we love. Example For, for an example, like before I, I got married, all I had to think about each morning was what I wanted to do for the day, right? What I needed to do for the day. And then suddenly, when I get married, there's like this whole other person I need to consider. Marriage isn't about me. It's about, it's about us, right? Man, we learned this our first few days on our honeymoon, right? Our first time staying together. That we, we learned that we vacation differently, right? Like, I'm like, let's... Let's sit by the pool. Let's read some books. Let's order some pina coladas, right? Let, let's, let's vacation it up. But my wife's version of vacation it up is, man, let's go talk to the concierge. Let's get all the brochures. Let's see all the things to do. And then let's just do all the things for all the days, right? Yeah, like that's not me, right? But you get married, suddenly it's not about me. It's not about her. And it's now about us. And so we had to learn early on uh, how to work through that. See, one of the primary problems that we have is that we're selfish. If you're one of those people who say that, you know, you're not selfish, then your other primary problem is you're a liar. We're all self-centered. You know how we know that we're self-centered is that uh, if, you, if you ask me to take like a group picture uh, if we're out with a group and you ask me, hey, can you take a picture of our group uh, because you want to post it on social media to show others like what you're doing and who you're doing it with, and I take a few pictures, you know, just for extra good measure, and I hand you your, your phone back, who are you going to look for in that picture? The first person you're going to look at is you, Right? First person you're going to look for is you. You're going to scroll through the three, four, five pictures that I snapped, and the one that you look best in, that's the one you're going to post. It doesn't matter if the first person in front of you is like, like blinking, they have their eyes closed, if the person next to you has got like a giant thing of like food in there, just stuck in between their teeth, and this other person like behind you is like looking at like the wrong camera, the wrong person. Like you're going to look for the one picture that makes you think, I look good in this. And that's what's going up. And it's going up right now, right? Here's the other reason. The other reason is not that, that, that we uh, get into these conflicts is not only are we self-centered people, but like we're, we're all different from one another. That's what James says also in verse 2. He says, you don't have what you want because you're not going to God for it. 
Why would you go to, for God, to God for anything? He says, uh, I mean, I don't know, because maybe because he's good, right? Because he's wonderful, because he's the creator of all things, and in Christ, he's faithful to the end. But why would you go to an imperfect, selfish person and expect them to fulfill your deepest desires? They can't. They can't. They're limited humans. This should be expected. Not only are they limited, but they have different desires. Every person has different personalities, different ways of communicating. This includes the people that you live with, almost especially the people that you live with, right? And because they're, they're different from you, they have potential to cause you great frustration. We're all different. We're all self-centered. And if that's true, you're probably wondering, like, man, then can we really get along in this life? Can we ever get along? Can we ever stop fighting? Is there any hope for our conflicts and moving in the direction of, of healing and of reconciliation? And the answer, of course, is yes. With God's help, we can go from selfishness to service of other people by the grace of God. Notice James isn't saying here to attack the person. He's saying to attack the problem. And the real problem is not where we usually think it is, is it? We see in these verses, like, because, see, see, we think that the problem is like everyone else, right? It's my wife's fault. It's my husband's fault. It's my, my mom or my dad's fault. It's my friend's fault. It's my kid's fault. It's my coworker's fault. But notice what it says there. He says it's not about looking around you, but looking inside you. Read verse 1 again. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, your passions are at war within you? And so the basic principle to get from this verse here is that you must attack the real problem, all right? You must attack the real problem, which is the sin that you bring to the table. Your real problem, your biggest problem in conflict is the sin that you bring to the table. That conflict is in you. You need to first look inside you. And so that means before you address the person, you need to address the problem of the passions that are in you. That means you're going to look inside you and ask God to reveal what is in you, that it, what it is that in you that you need to deal with, right? So you might think you're contributing 50% to the conflict. You might think you're contributing uh, uh, 90% to the conflict, or you might think you're contributing only 10% to the conflict. But the Spirit's encouragement through this text is to look inside yourself, and what you'll find is, oh, man, the problem I need to deal with is in me. That's my main problem. I mean, Jesus, he put it so brilliantly in Matthew 7, didn't he? When he said, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That metaphor kind of makes you chuckle there with Jesus because, and it's supposed to, be, to make you chuckle, right? It's supposed to be funny because it's like straight out of a comic in the New Yorker, right? Like Jesus is saying like, how are you going to deal with an issue that's like a speck of sawdust in your brother's eye 
when you've got like this two by four growing out of your eye socket? Stop pointing fingers. Stop exploding. Stop using that tone. Stop reacting. Stop blaming. Instead, look first at the problem inside you. Attack the real problem. Number two, bring it to God in prayer. Bring it to God in prayer. Now, this should be obvious, but it says right there in verse 2, we'll read this again. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And then he says, you do not have because you do not ask. James is saying the way that we engage in conflict, just the way that we tend to do it, we're doing it all wrong. Instead of going to God, instead of going to God, what ends up happening is we're scheming on how to get what we want, and we end up killing to get it. You might think, I'm not killing anyone here, right? What does it mean that I murder? I'm not killing anyone here. But look at what Proverbs 18.21 says. Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. What about Jesus' words again in the Sermon on the Mount? But a couple chapters earlier in Matthew 5, he said, You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. You see, we cause death with our words. We cause death with our words. Every wife knows just what to say to cause death to her husband. Every husband knows just what to say to cause death to her. Every child knows just what to say to cause death to their parent. My youngest kid, Judd, he learned this like way too early, right? Like he was, so he's three right now. And I think like when he was about to turn three, so he was like not even like three yet, okay? So this is almost a year ago. Um, He learned He saw, he observed, he learned that like, man, when he says, I love you, that that makes us go, oh, melts our hearts. So when he doesn't like what we're doing or saying, the first thing he started saying was, I don't love you. Just out of nowhere, right? Hey, Judd, sorry, buddy, you can't have that. I don't love you, right? He's a little bundle of depravity, right? I don't love you. Words can kill. They can kill. Not physically, but maybe even worse, right? With your words, you can kill their hope. With your words, you can kill their dreams. You can kill their opinions because they're not yours that you share. Even worse, with your words, you can kill somebody's self-worth and self-value and how they see themselves. There's no such thing as a, as a winning argument when it comes to a person that you love because when they lose, so do you. And when they're hurt, you're hurting yourself. So how do we make sure that, that we're handling this properly, that our words are right and tactful and wise? I want you to just imagine the difference. Imagine the difference that it would make if you sought God's wisdom before engaging in conflict. 
Imagine the difference that would make if before you gauged, engaged in conflict, when you're feeling the tension, when you're feeling frustrated and upset, if you first sought God's wisdom before you engaged in that conflict. I mean, some of us, man, when we're in conflict, we just want to bite and devour the person right away. We want the W right away. We want to win right away. You might need to spend time thinking or praying or just waiting for things to cool down first or waiting for things to cool down for them. That would be wise, right? I mean, think about the difference that that would make if instead of biting and devouring one another right away, causing harm to one another, if we took time to stop and consider how would God have me handle this moment? What does his word say? Can I seek counsel from a wise brother or sister on how to approach this? You ever notice how you'll sometimes like, like if you know the buttons to push, you ever notice that like you'll push the buttons of, of someone that you know just, just so that you can trigger them, Right? So that when they explode, you get to take the higher ground just to prove yourself, right? Like, see, you're the one with the problem, not me, right? Like, that's so messed up. Why do we do that? Man, I remember, I remember years ago, years ago, there was this uh, situation where uh, this, this guy had, like, just disrespected my little sister, all right? And just in case you're wondering if you know my sister and her husband and you know that they're high school sweethearts, right? Like this, this is not him, right? All right? So this is not, this is not Eric. This is somebody, this is somebody else, a different situation. But there was, dude, there was this situation uh, uh, where, where uh, somebody had deeply disrespected my sister. And this guy was an acquaintance of mine. And so I'm like, hey, man, like, can we sit down and can we talk? And so like, we meet in this public place, you know, for his safety, uh, Starbucks, we meet at a Starbucks, we're sitting across the table from him, and uh, I'm like telling him like just the things that, there's just there's ways that he wronged my little sister, and he kept going like, yeah, like, I don't know if I see it that way, or yeah, I think she like misheard that, or um, didn't receive that the way that it was intended, and she just kept pushing like my buttons, right? And like, I'm, I, I don't realize, like, I'm starting to get like visibly agitated and I'm just trying like everything, like trying to do everything in me to like just keep my cool, my hands start to shake. And he sees my hand shaking and he leans over and he goes, hey, Chris, let's change the subject. But I'm wondering, do you think that maybe you have an anger problem? And I'm like, dude, bro. Like, I was ready to punch this pretty boy in his smug little face, right? Sometimes we just know how to push those buttons. And we do it on purpose so that when the other person explodes, we can look down on them and call them out and feel better and bigger about ourselves. See, you, James says, he encourages us. No, don't, don't, don't bite and devour one another. You, you, you ask God for help. You wait for things to cool down. 
You wait for things to cool down, but you also don't wait like a few years, right? Like where everybody's forgotten what happened and it never gets addressed. No, you, you, you sit down and you take time to pray and you say, hey, Lord God, like you are my wonderful counselor. Help me, help me to speak to this person in a way that's going to help us become more of who it is that you want us to become. Help me to see what it is that they're going through, why they're upset, why they're hurt, what they're dealing with, where their wounds are, and help my words and my actions bring healing. Help me to represent Christ more in this conflict. In the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, he says it this way in verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 18 of the book of Romans. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In other words, it might not seem possible, but I'm going to do everything, everything I can, everything I can do uh, to make sure that I'm handling this in the best time, in the best way, with God's help to resolve this in a godly manner. One practical pro tip for this is when you're in the middle of conflict and you're addressing it. You may have heard this, but people say, like, it's best to start with the words, I feel. Right? I feel. Because I feel is a lot different than you did this. You are this. I feel is disarming because you're not pointing a finger at them, which nobody likes. Right, Brian? Right? Nobody likes that. That felt bad, right? You did not like that. Nobody likes a finger pointed at them. You're just talking about how you're feeling, how that landed on you. Look, when you pray, you make sure that you pray for the right thing. Make sure you pray for the right thing, which is the glory of God and the growth of everyone involved. When you pray, make sure that you're praying for the right thing, the glory of God and the growth of everyone Involved. Now, why do I say that? It's because we see this in some sense in verse 3. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In other words, when you seek God's help, make sure you have God's heart in this. That through this, God is glorified. That through this, everyone gets to grow from this that you're concerned, genuinely concerned, for the good of others. In other words, when you're ruled by your passions at war within you, when you're ruled by those sinful desires, when when you are not addressing that war beneath the war, then what happens is you start to dehumanize others because you no longer look at them as a person to love. You look at them as a means to get what you want. Or you begin to look at them as an obstacle keeping you from getting what you want. And in both instances, whether you see you're using them as an instrument to get what you want or as an obstacle that needs to get out of the way from what you want, in both instances, you're just looking at people to give you what you want instead of looking to God who's all satisfying. You see, personal conflict, when we don't address the real problem. And we don't bring it to God in prayer. It has a negative effect on our spiritual walk, on your own relationship with God. 
When you're ruled by your own selfish desires, it not only affects your relationship with the person across from you, it also affects your vertical relationship with God. That's why he warns, he says, and says, you're spending, you're asking on your passions instead of asking for the right things according to my wisdom. And a prayerful person will lead to, number three, where you confess to God and one another. C, confess to God and to one another. Check out what verse four says. James says, you adulterous people, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the whole world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, here's why you need to confess to God. The core principle of this passage is that all human conflicts, all of it is rooted in spiritual adultery. That's why he uses that word. Our problem is not so much that we don't love each other enough. Our greater problem is that we don't love God enough. And James is giving us a powerful category to look at here when he uses that term, you adulterous people. Look, adultery is not a word that we use a lot in our culture, right? We talk about affairs. We talk about cheating. We talk about irreconcilable differences. We don't use the word adultery, but it's a biblical one. Adultery is when I've made a promise to fully give my love to one other person in marriage, but instead I give it to another. The Bible teaches that when you're a follower of Jesus, you have, in a very real sense, been brought into a covenant relationship with God, like a marriage. And just like Brian mentioned a few weeks ago, the Bible calls the church, God's people, the bride of Christ. And so while God should have the deepest love of our hearts, there are other loves that we run to instead. And when that happens, we have conflict with God and it causes conflict with one another. Look at verse five, he says, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Now, is jealousy a good thing or is it a bad thing? And think about it, it's jealousy. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Yes. Yes, it can be. It all depends on who and what we're talking about, right? When the Bible says that God is jealous for us to come back to him, just so you know, that's not a sinful jealousy that our minds tend to go to, right? That's not a sinful jealousy. It's actually a righteous one. It's important that we know the difference. Like if I get jealous that my wife gives our waiter at some restaurant like a smile and a friendly greeting, that's sinful jealousy, all right? Like she's just being nice and she should be nice. But if I get jealous that my wife gives our waiter like a wink, right? And like her phone number and says, hey, call me, let's get together for drinks. Like I'm gonna be mad jealous, all right? I'm gonna be sinful jealous. No tip for that guy. The same is true other way around too, right? Like of all the women in the world, I love my wife the most, of all the women. And it would be right for my wife, it would be good and right and true for my wife to desire that love to be exclusive. Look, God loves you. He loves us with a love that is so pure and so faithful that his love will not tolerate a wandering heart. 
So when we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves, it's because we've loved something more than God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. One of the ways to determine the idols that we're committing adultery with in our hearts is to ask the question, what is the thing that you feel so entitled to that when it's not given to you, you get angry? The one thing you feel so entitled to that when it's not given to you, you get upset. Those are hard words, right? Some of you are like, there's not one thing. I can think of a few things. Those are hard words, but man, there's good news for us. Good news for us. Look at verse 6. It says, but he, God, he gives more, what's the word? Grace. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You need to know that you are not in this conflict alone. You are not in your battles alone. One of the amazing things that God does is take proud people like me and proud people like you when he shows us that we're worse than we ever imagined. And the reason that that's an amazing thing is because when we recognize the effect that sin has on our hearts, it starts to end our pride. It starts to make us humble. And that opens us to grace and power that we never knew. The good news is there is grace for proud people like us. And this relationship between humility and grace is so key that James repeats it again later in verse 10 when he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. See, humility requires you to own your sin. That you take responsibility for your part in the conflict. And when I say that, some of you are like, no, but he, no, you first take responsibility for your part in the conflict. Own your sin. The biblical word for this is confession. And so you confess to God and you also confess to the person that you've sinned against. Next chapter in James 5, verse 16, it says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There is healing and hope for the man and woman who confess. Are you looking for hope in your conflicts? Are you looking for peace? Man, James 5 says, there is healing for your conflict. And it comes through confession. So you confess to one another. Confession, like we mentioned, is taking responsibility. So that means confession is not, I'm sorry you feel that way. Confession is not, I'm sorry you misunderstood me. It's not, I'm sorry, okay? No, in true confession, you take full responsibility for your sin. You take ownership. You own your sin. It's not just saying, I'm sorry, but it's saying, I'm sorry 
I. I'm sorry, I. Man, you have no idea how powerful those three words can be. I'm sorry, I. I'm sorry, I hurt you, spoken kindly to you. I had anger in my heart. I'm sorry I was selfish in that moment, that I was only thinking about myself. I'm sorry I was more concerned about proving myself right than showing up to hear you out and connect with you. I'm sorry that when I defended myself, I hurt you, and that was wrong of me. I'm sorry I've been resentful and bitter against you for the thing you did five months ago. I've held your sin against you. I haven't shown you grace. I'm sorry I haven't been the husband that God calls me to be. I've not been a spiritual leader in our home to you or to our kids. It's not taking partial but full responsibility for the sin that you bring into the relationship. And to be clear, that doesn't mean you say, I'm sorry that I did that, but it, you made me do that, right? It doesn't mean that you get to say, hey, I'm sorry this happened, but if you were only this way, if you only didn't do those other things, right? No, it's, it's saying, look, I was wrong. Let me own my stuff. Allow the Spirit of God to work in them through their stuff. That's his job. That's God's Spirit's job to do. That's the Spirit of God's job to do. But it's you saying, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? I go back to verse 7. We skipped it, but he says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, look, Satan would love nothing more than for our conflict with one another to disrupt the unity of God's people. He would love nothing more than for it to brew bitterness between a husband and wife. He would love nothing more than for conflict to draw a wedge between two believers who should be brothers in Christ or sisters in Christ. He would love nothing more than for it to disrupt the witness of a believer with his or her neighbor. So man, don't let him get that stranglehold on you. Submit yourselves to God. Humble yourself before him. Receive grace when you confess to him and to others. And lastly, number four, draw near to God for help. Draw near to God for help, knowing that he will. Verse 8 says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. There's power in drawing near to him. When we abide in him, we could do anything. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing of spiritual worth. There is power in stopping to pray and delight in Christ. There's power when we stop and say, Jesus, 
thank you for my wife. Thank you for my neighbor. Thank you for my friend, for my child. Help us through this conflict that we're having. Remember James 4, verse 2, when, when, when James said, you do not have because you do not ask? Man, if the reason we don't have is because we don't ask, then let's ask. Let's draw near to God for help. Let's have the courage to say, look, I'm not going to rely on someone else to make me happy. I'm not going to rely on someone else to bring me peace. I'm, not going, I'm going to go to God instead because he's the only one who's perfect. He's the only one who can truly satisfy. I'm going to rest in him, to lean on him, and he's going to bring me peace in every area of my life. Real talk here, dude, my, my wife and I, we, we argue, all right? We get in conflicts, Sometimes they get really bad. Just the other day, we got in a huge argument. Um, I won't get into the details of it, but um, basically, like, I, she overheard me saying something to uh, a friend of ours. And I made, like, some, we were making some plans, like, with, with, with people and stuff. And I, I said something uh, that, explicitly contradicted um, like something that my wife had, had asked for and asked about previously, right? And when she asked me about it the next day, because my wife overheard this conversation, she asked me about it the next day, and she's like, hey, can you, can you tell me about that conversation? Because she was being gracious. She's like, man, like, maybe I heard this wrong, right? Like, maybe I don't understand the whole context. And what I relayed back to her was like totally different from what she heard. And I wasn't like trying to be dishonest, but I like was thinking in my mind like, here's how the conversation went down, and right? And she's like, oh, okay. And so she was thinking to herself like, okay, like that's, that's how like I probably just misunderstood. Well, then we got in a conversation with that friend like the following day, and it turns out that I was wrong. I was wrong. And man, I doubled down so hard. I doubled down so hard because I didn't want to feel like I was crazy. I didn't want to be proven wrong. I didn't want to be told that I wasn't listening and caring for her, something that she had previously told me was very important to her. And even though, like, I genuinely felt in the initial conversation, like, this is how it happened. But when all the evidence started pointing differently, like, I just doubled and tripled down. I was more concerned with proving myself right than actually listening and connecting with my wife. It's shameful. I'm embarrassed to admit that. You see, we were talking about how because... Like, I had to ask forgiveness for my wife, and she was gracious, and of course, she, like, she forgave me. But in that conversation, we talked about how because we're all sinners, there's, like, a gap between every single one of us, right? And when we're focused on ourselves, we fill that gap with posturing, with deception, 
maybe even subconsciously, with self-protection. We fill it up with shame or anxiety or control or avoiding. When we are focused on the God of the gospel, when our eyes are on the king of the cross, And when we see that space between us and the people we love, what we do is we fill it with grace and understanding and connection that only God makes possible. We fill it with a grace that says, you know what? I know that my worth comes from God. I know that this person's worth comes from God. I know that my confidence comes from the future he promised me. And so I don't need to give up and cower under the weight of this conflict. I also don't need to like overpower and overexert myself and control the other person in this. No, because I don't get my confidence in the other person. Like I get my confidence in the God who loved me and lived for me and died for me and rose for me. You see, the gospel frees us from the need to engage and self-serving conflict. Jesus went to the cross for us. He absorbed real conflict, cosmic conflict for us. The cross is powerful. In the cross, we see the cost of his sacrifice. Every time you're in conflict, remember that cross. Remember that you go to Christ for what you need. When you think about how much he loved you, only then can you truly love others. When you think about how much he laid it on the line and sacrificed for you, only then can you sacrifice for others. When you think about how much he absorbed the punishment of your sins, Absorb the punishment of your sin, then you can let go of grudges. You can get let go of bitterness. You can get let go of resentment because he doesn't hold any against you as a sinner. When all the charges against your sin, all the charges against you for your sins have been dismissed, paid for by the real judge, then why should I be defensive? When you have received the love of the Lord God Almighty, what could possibly offend you? Why should I be slow to forgive when I've been forgiven and washed by the blood of Christ my Savior? The gospel, it changes everything. Changes everything. In the gospel, we see that our real problem is sin. In the gospel, we see that we have a father who's adopted us into his family by the blood of Christ that we can come to in prayer. In the gospel, we can know that we can approach God, come to him and confess our sins, take ownership of our sins, surrender it to him, and know that he won't destroy us even though that's what we deserve. In the gospel, we know that we can draw near to him and that he has already drawn near to us. 
humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.